You are most welcome to this webinar on strategic leadership in the time of COVID-19 with General David Petraeus. It's part of a series on COVID-19 and early lessons from the pandemic that we are organizing together with the School of Public Policy. COVID-19 has presented leaders with the challenge of a generation. It's probably fair to say that not all leaders have come out equally well out of this test. And we thought it would be useful to take a step back and see what leadership entails and what it might imply in the current crisis. What are the tools a leader, a leader need and how can you teach those tools? We thought that perhaps a military perspective would be an interesting place to start. We are at war with an invisible enemy. Men and women on the front line are sacrificing themselves in the battle against the virus. We ask to come together and support our troops and so on. But are these really the, the right terms to use to think about uh, this particular challenge? Are these the right way to motivate people? For one, we are trying to save lives, not kill one another. We want to bring countries together rather than pit them against each other. It could be that we also are looking at the wrong aspects of military experience for lessons. Military thinking has gone through radical change uh, since uh, the wars of the 20th century. We have with us here today one of the most experienced military commanders, General David Petraeus. He's been part of rethinking war in, in the US military and how to conduct military operations and what warfare means in different contexts. He served in many different roles in many different theaters, but of course he's most known for his role as commander uh, in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He also served as director of Central Intelligence Agency during the Obama administration. These days, he is a partner at the KKR and uh, uh, head of the KKR Global Institute. And he's also associated with the Belfast Center at the Harvard uh, Kennedy School. Most welcome, uh, General Petraeus. We are greatly honored to have you here. We also have with us uh, Professor Michael Barcelli, professor at uh, the LSE in the management department. He's worked extensively on public management, public policy, and, and change. He's analyzed strategic leadership also in military organizations. We're very glad that Michael has agreed to be part of today's conversation. He, he will make some comments after General Petraeus has had a chance to share his thoughts. We've also asked Dr. Shirley as a senior visiting fellow in the Institute of Global Affairs to help lead the conversation. She has a long career behind her as an anchor woman on Chinese television, and she's one of the most frequent commentators on Chinese and global affairs on the BBC and other international media. Thank you for agreeing to moderate today's conversation. Before I hand over to Shirley, I just wanted to say that we will leave ample room for questions and answers after the discussion within the panel. We have a very large audience, both on this webinar and on Facebook. For those of you participating in the Zoom webinar, you can use the Q&A function in Zoom, and we'll tr also try to monitor questions from the comment function on Facebook. Please introduce yourself and your affiliation when asking questions and, and, and keep them short. We'll try to keep track of all this, but you know, please bear with us um, as we have a very, very large audience. Without further ado, uh, I hand this over to you, Shirley, please. 
Thank you very much, Eric. Uh, General Petraeus, you served uh, closely President uh, Bush 43 and uh, President uh, Barack Obama. And since then, you have found a bigger calling to serve uh, President of KKR, Harry Kravis. And now I finally understand why capitalism always wins in the end. We are really indeed uh, greatly honored to have you here at the LSC. You are considered uh, one of the greatest uh, military generals of the 21st century. Vice President uh, Mike Pence called you an American hero. And I want to ask you today what President Trump actually thinks of your uh, Washington and post the article. So tell us, what is leadership to you? Well, thanks very much, Shirley, and uh, thanks, Eric, for the kind introduction and the kind invitation to be with LSE. It's my first event ever with LSE, despite a lot of uh, activities with a variety of different universities in the UK. Um, <clears throat> somebody described to me one time, leadership is the art of imposing your will on an organization. Um, and there may be some elements to that. There are times when you do have to drive a campaign where you are, in a sense, uh, imposing one's intellectual thinking on an organization to get it to move uh, in the right direction. But I, I prefer a description of leadership uh, that is more one of setting the conditions for each of those who reports directly to you and to the organization overall so that it can be all that it can be. They can be all that they can be. This is an old army slogan, in fact, for recruiting. Um, and I think that's the proper perspective. And I think that's also uh, has a huge insight about leadership style, which is that it can't be the same for every organization that you lead over the years. It, varies dramatically. If you're leading a, you know, he's a young airborne lieutenant leading a hardcore uh, airborne platoon, uh, it's a very visceral, very follow me, very cheerleading kind of approach, um, as opposed to leading a huge multinational coalition, um, or indeed the, the CIA. And so I think you have to be very sensitive again to how do I bring the best out in the organization collectively and in each of the individuals uh, I'm privileged to oversee directly as well. But as you know, my focus really has been on a subset of leadership that is strategic leadership. Um, and this is, I think, has its own unique tasks. Um, certainly all leaders perform these tasks, but it's only the strategic leader or if there are co-heads, as in the firm I'm privileged to be a partner in, um, individuals that are picking the way forward. These are the individuals that are determining the strategy. In the case of, say, the surge in Iraq, it, I was the strategic military leader. Ambassador Crocker was the strategic diplomatic leader. And there are four tasks that a strategic leader has to get right. The first is to get the big ideas right, to get the strategy right. And by the way, if you don't get that right, all the rest doesn't matter. You can be the most inspirational, charismatic, energetic, uh, focused, hardworking, and everything else. But if you do not have the right big ideas, if your strategy is wrong, you are not going to succeed. The organization will not succeed. And keep in mind, for example, in the surge in Iraq, the big ideas were 180 degrees different uh, from what it was that we were doing prior to the surge. Then the second task is you have to communicate the big ideas through the breadth and depth of the organization. Um, if you're a startup leader, that could be as few people as those that sit around a conference room table. And I'm also a private venture capitalist and have done drills with small uh, elements, again, uh, of, of startups where they can, everybody in the room is, is the startup. 
if you have 165,000 American men and women in uniform and tens of thousands of other uh, coalition members and even your, co your host nation partners, leaders above you and around you, that takes a good bit more. So that's the second task. And then the third task is what we normally associate with leadership. These are all the functions. This is the overseeing the implementation of the big ideas. This is providing the example, the energy, the inspiration, the drive, the determination, determining the metrics, uh, ensuring that they really are rigorous, determining how you spend your own time. We called it a battle rhythm. Uh, when I was in uniform, it was very, very uh, intricate, in some cases, 10, 15 minute intervals. And it showed what we did every single day, every uh, few few times a week, couple times a week, once a week, uh, biweekly, monthly, all the way up to the six hour quarterly civilian military plan review that Ambassador Crocker and I co-hosted together. Uh, so that's another aspect of this as well. And again, that's a lot of what we normally think of. It's the hiring of good people, attracting them, keeping them. It's allowing those that aren't measuring up to move on to something else and, and so forth. And then there's a fourth task that is often overlooked. This is something that I believe has to be performed formally. It should be on your battle rhythm in a variety of different ways. We did, we had an hour on there once a month for one particular group of individuals. This was the colonels who headed all the different lessons learned organizations that were all over the battlefields in Iraq and also in Afghanistan. Uh, but you do it with your planners, you do it with others. And so again, it, it almost forces you. In fact, it becomes an action forcing mechanism for you uh, to determine how the big ideas need to be refined so that you can do it again and again and again. And keep in mind the importance of that fourth task. When you think about Kodak, which had apparently 2000 or more uh, patents on digital photography, but didn't recognize the need to move rapidly in that direction. Others beat them to that, uh, and they've never been the same ever since. So getting those four tasks, performing them correctly, is the art of strategic leadership. But again, it begins with getting the big ideas right, without which everything else is, is, is futile. And that is normally done, and there are subtasks for each of these. That one, the subtask is generally that it is done iteratively because we don't get hit on the head by Newton's apple fully formed. If you sit under the right tree, you get hit on the head by a seed or a kernel of a big idea and you shape it through a conversation that should be as inclusive and open and transparent. And again, very iterative because no one of us is smarter than all of us together. So that particular subset of leadership, again, strategic leadership, I think is truly crucial uh, for organizations, for countries, for military units, uh, for Alibaba with Jack Ma, a great strategic leader. Uh, Reed Hastings uh, of Netflix, again, another one. Uh, all of these, when you see an organization that is changing, Netflix has reinvented itself at least four times. Um, mm -hmm. think, think of Amazon and Jeff Bezos, uh, how they continued shaping of, of new big ideas, refining of the old ones as you move from one use case to another, uh, that is really, truly extraordinary strategic leadership. 
So many can be leaders, but fewer can be strategic. I wish uh, uh, Greta Thunberg is uh, tuning into your session today. So uh, you talk about uh, the big ideas, uh, General Petraeus. Larry Summers recently uh, said at an LSE event, actually, this level of global pandemic might occur from here on once every decade or so, rather than once every century, due to the rapid urbanization across uh, Asia Pacific. So do countries just wait for another wave of pandemic to hit every decade or so? We just tough it out and we shut down the economies and universities? Is that the big idea? No, I think the big idea is to have the big ideas in mind before you get hit. Uh, the biggest of the big ideas should be to constantly anticipate uh, to be looking out there in the minute that there is a sign of something that could become a global pandemic. Uh, immediately, uh, you ensure that you have the right testing regime, you activate that capability, you dramatically increase it, uh, you revitalize your contact tracing capabilities so that when you identify individuals who are positive, you can immediately determine who they came into contact with. You have regimes for selective isolation of these individuals so that, again, when one pops up in Seattle, you immediately track, trace, and selectively isolate so that it doesn't continue uh, to infect, it at, in, especially when it becomes community transmission. So that, again, the big idea is prevent community transition almost at all cost. Uh, if you have community transmission, as clearly has been the case in so many countries in the world, and certainly uh, in the United States, with New York City being the epicenter uh, of this for sure. But when that happens, then you've just got to shut everything down. You have no choice, I think, but to, to reduce social contact to the greatest extent possible you implement a variety of other measures, such as the wear of masks, physical distancing, uh, teleworking for anybody who possibly can, complete isolation to the best of your ability for those who are the most at risk for this, the elderly, those with pre-existing conditions, and so forth. And again, you have massive testing, contact tracing, and then selective isolation regimes. And for what it's worth, um, those big ideas largely have been agreed in the guidelines put out by the, the White House in the United States, Harvard Safra Center, uh, AEI. There's a whole series of these. They're all generally uh, the same, and they all recognize that, again, if you have community transmission, you have to stop it by shutting down. Right. And only when you have 14 days of downward trajectory in the metrics that show uh, the infection numbers, can you consider starting to reduce restrictions while still having masks worn in public, still right. teleworking for those who can, still isolating those who are the most at risk, and uh, really if and only if you've got a massive testing capacity, contact tracing, and then mm -hmm. selective isolation uh, procedures, and that is crucial. And I don't think, frankly, uh, that we still have the sufficient numbers in the United States. And I think that President Trump is going to address that uh, in a press conference this afternoon at the White House. Well, leadership is always tested by the unexpected. Uh, speaking of which, you commanded 140,000 coalition forces during the surge in Iraq, if I'm not mistaken. And the current. Uh, it was a few more than that. Um, it was <laughs> about, uh, I mean, we had 165,000 Americans. Okay, so much alone. more than that another 170,000 contractors and probably 20 to 30,000 coalition, and then hundreds of thousands of uh, Iraqi partners as well. So that was a very large organization. 
So the current uh, COVID-19 death toll uh, globally, I should say, uh, General Petraeus is almost uh, talking about it, almost equivalent to wiping out all the troops that you were talking about that were stationed in Iraq at the time. So you certainly could not have survived this sort of death tolls uh, as the commander in Iraq. And so this is a different scenario, of course, but how did you face the cameras at the time and convince the world that more people have died, but I'm still right? Well, these are two very different situations. Um, certainly when it came to the surge in Iraq, uh, when I went before Congress for my confirmation hearing before uh, assuming the duties of multinational force Iraq commander, uh, I told the senators and the Senate Armed Services Committee, this is going to get much harder before it gets easier. I laid out what our strategy was going to be. I explained the big ideas, the biggest of which that was that we had to secure the people. The human terrain is a decisive terrain, and we can only do that by living with them. And, and for the previous year or more, we had gradually been withdrawing from Iraqi neighborhoods, handing off tasks to the Iraqi security forces. But tragically, there had been an incident in February 2006, the surge started about a year later, that set off a cycle of Sunni, Shia, sectarian violence that just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And it's just a downward spiral that, if it's not arrested, uh, continues on down and was on the verge of a full-blown civil war. Keep in mind that the month before the surge began, there were 53 dead Iraqi civilian bodies due to violence uh, in Baghdad alone, in the capital of the country. So this is completely out of control. That's above and beyond the casualties that our forces, Iraqi forces, uh, and so forth uh, were taking as well. So mm -hmm. I explained the big ideas. We are going to have to live with the people to secure them. We're going to have to fight to get back into many of the neighborhoods uh, mm -hmm. in which there's, there's clashing between uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Sunni insurgents and then Shia militia and other forces. Uh, this is going to be very, very tough. It was. It did get worse before it got better. But then uh, within about four months, there started to be a significant downturn. And by the time that I went back with Ambassador Crocker to testify to uh, various houses of the Senate and the House of Representatives in the U.S., we had a substantial downward trend. Uh, virtually all of the metrics that we followed most, the really high-profile attacks that in some days were killing 150 Iraqi civilians with suicide bombs in multiple markets uh, down considerably, civilian casualties down considerably, uh, our casualties starting to come down. Most importantly, just sheer mm -hmm. indicators of violence uh, were down some 45% or so. So again, that was more than statistically significant. It mm -hmm. demonstrated that the, the approach was working uh, mm -hmm. And then that gave us, if you will, the additional support that was necessary uh, to continue for the duration of the surge, which was another 12 months or so, um, by the end of which violence was down by 85 percent. And in Iraq essentially had a whole new opportunity uh, to pursue that hadn't been present clearly when they were on the verge of a civil war. Right. The current situation, I think, is is very, very different in the sense this distinction of lives versus livelihoods, I think, is a little bit of a false choice. Uh, and the reason I say that is that those who say, okay, let's let up, let's, you know, we're destroying the economy, we have to get back to the economy, right. overlook the fact that you can reopen 
retail stores. You can allow people to go into restaurants again. You can open up the broad gamut, the hospitality industry, whatever. But unless the people have confidence, they are not going to resume most of the activities that they uh, carried out before, which are the drivers of the economy, especially in the United States, which is some 75% driven by domestic consumption. So you, so have, to have, you have to have confidence. Uh, the people have to have that. Or mm -hmm. again, it doesn't matter what's open, the economy is not going to come back. So in this case, um, I think that situation is a bit different than the case where you say, okay, we got to take some losses for a while, but then it's going to get better. Yeah. If you're taking losses, and especially if they're going up, confidence is going down, and you have got to deal with the health uh, crisis before you can actually address the economic collapse. And that is a huge challenge, I recognize. Right. So on that point, I, I, I suppose right now the next agenda for both the United States and the United Kingdom is to reopen the economy at some point. So if we shut the economy to save tens of thousands of lives, it's very well worth the effort. But if uh, to save a couple of dozen lives, probably not. I'm sorry to say this, but governments make utilitarian trade-offs all the time. But it's a huge gamble for political leaders. How do you time this decision? Well, I think, again, the big ideas actually are quite clear. After months of experience, um, the various authorities, again, within the government, in the form of the White House guidelines, uh, in the scientific world, uh, mm -hmm. the National Governors Association uh, has a very good study that their experts put together, and all of these agree that until you have the downward trend, uh, you should not relax restrictions. Now, we certainly mm -hmm. have some... Uh, states and municipalities in the U.S. that are doing that. Uh, they are continuing some of the safeguards, to be sure, but I fear that that could prove premature, and what you will have then is not the kind of recovery that you're hoping for. And by the way, keep in mind, this is not going to be a V-shaped recovery. It's not bouncing back that quickly. I think now people can see that, but that was the expectation early on. At best, it's going to be a U, or an elongated U. You want to have that as vertical as possible, but I would contend that without confidence among the citizenry, you won't have that. Mm -hmm. The worst would be a W, uh, where you have actually recovered somewhat, and then there is uh, either some kind of uh, new infection or it bounces back from some other area as we let our guard down. Uh, it mutates. Uh, again, That these are the challenges, and they are very different, very difficult choices to be sure, except that, again, I, I don't necessarily agree that you're going to sacrifice a few thousand lives for the economy, because if that happens, the mm -hmm. economy will not come back. This is not a case of saying, okay, we got to fight our way into the neighborhoods. This is going to be tough. We're going to take some casualties, but it'll be worth it. And we'll see the benefits of that very quickly. In this case, I think if you take casualties, uh, further casualties, you lose confidence. And that's really the essence of the recovery uh, in all of our countries. And for what it's worth, it's a bit worrisome to see uh, South Korea, which is doing such a fantastic job, uh, had a super spreader in a bar when they reopened, I think it was this past weekend. And all of a sudden, again, there are hundreds of individuals, um, even in Wuhan, they've actually had a little outbreak again. So uh, this is going to be very, very tough. And without the massive testing regime, sure. uh, without the contact tracing, and without perhaps at some point 
some kind of digital credential that we all carry that is linked to the last test that we took. And those tests become so ubiquitous that you can do it every 24 hours or every hour or whatever it is. We'll see what science can do. But that's going to be required, I think. Absolutely. Uh, I noticed that we have more and more people joining us now, and I wanted to ask you some bigger questions. Now, you, you commanded the multinational forces from over 60 countries during the surge, and at one point in time, you did mention that you actually had to threaten, I think, using an inappropriate word, uh, Prime Minister Maliki, to bend in your way, actually a 180-degree bend. So if you were the commander of this uh, multinational effort against the COVID-19 now, how would you make two of the world's most powerful leaders to stop attacking each other? Well, first of all, if I could just um, make sure that there's not a misimpression by what you just said. First of all, actually the, the coalition that was over 60 countries was actually in Afghanistan. In Iraq, I think we had 20 plus or 30, 30 plus, something like that. Um, second, you don't threaten uh, <laughs> elected leaders uh, and survive to tell about it. That is what's called non-biodegradable. It never goes away. Um, certainly, you try to convince uh, leaders you're supporting, uh, whose countries you are helping to uh, combat terrible violence and so forth. Um, and sometimes uh, these have to be with issues that, uh, for which they don't have, it initially at least, uh, a real confidence or enthusiasm. Uh, reconciliation in Iraq, for example, I mean, the next big idea beyond we have to live with the people to secure them, the next one was that you can't kill or capture your way out of an industrial strength insurgency. You have to reconcile with as many of the rank and file of the enemy as you can. This meant the Sunni insurgents and also the Shia militia, while you even more relentlessly go after the irreconcilables with our special mission units, again, Delta SEAL Team 6, 22SAS was part of that, and so forth. Um, so that, that's the way that you go about this. And again, reconciliation for a Shia-majority country led by, understandably, a Shia prime minister with Sunni insurgents who have been going after the Shia population um, that causes some reservations, and understandably so. Uh, it's one thing to do that out in Anbar province, uh, let's say, where, again, it's all 99% Sunni Arab. Um, it's very different when you're in mixed neighborhoods in a city of seven-plus million people in Baghdad. And we had to very carefully work our way through that to establish the intellectual foundation for that big idea, to demonstrate the implementation of it, uh, would be absolutely fair and equitable and, and all the rest of that. Um, and over time, uh, and with help uh, from our Iraqi partners, we had a superb uh, Iraqi point person for that. Dr. Basimo was a, a, a brilliant woman on that particular effort and was one of the prime minister's uh, advisors on reconciliation. We did move forward. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's what you do. Now you're asking, how do we get the two most important global leaders to work together to develop a global solution to what clearly is a global pandemic and now an accompanying global economic collapse. And again, one would hope that there is a recognition that, you know, at some point, okay, let's stop the recriminations for a period of time at least until this is all over, and then we can go back and do the after-action review and finally understand what really took place in the beginning and 
where it began and how it got out, all the rest of this. That's for later on, I think. Right now, the imperative clearly is uh, for the leaders of the two most important countries in the world, without whose leadership, there will not be a global uh, approach to a global problem. And, but keep in mind, the imperative here is recognition. There's a huge big idea, and that is that no one of us is safe unless all of us are safe. Um, this is, again, a global uh, threat. And as long as it exists somewhere in the world, and that somewhere can get back into our societies, mm-hmm. which is very, very difficult to prevent, um, unless you can do that, again, Ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee, all of us. You know, any man's death diminisheth me, as, as John Donne wrote. And this is one of those situations, uh, very, very clearly. So, again, my hope would be that there are those around uh, the leaders who are advising, look, I know we're in an election year, I know this is a fragile time domestically, whatever. Um, we've got to come together for the good of the world uh, and for the good of our two countries. Um, this is a case, I mean, if you believe in America first, you got to have the whole globe because America first will be America alone um, if you don't have a global response. So I think that has to be the logic in this particular case. Absolutely. Talking about America first, so you have an opportunity, General, today to convince our European allies on NATO solidarity. Does Europe still have America's unwavering commitment? Yeah, I think this is one of those cases where, as I have sometimes offered, certainly, um, you know, listen to the press conferences, read the tweets, whatever, but follow the troops, follow the money, and follow the policy. And if you look at where NATO is now, um, several years, three and a half years into this administration, after several years of very robust support uh, for NATO in the previous and the administration before that, Um, You'll see that there is a U.S. armor brigade back on European soil for the first time uh, in a number of years. You'll see that there are uh, NATO forces, including U.S., but also U.K., Canada, and I think Germany and others in the Baltic states for the first time. Uh, There are, again, NATO forces in eastern Poland. There are U.S. aircraft out there. Uh, There are two new NATO command uh, headquarters, which are established. uh, One is a logistical uh, command to push forces out uh, to Eastern Europe, should that be necessary in the event of a threat out there. And the other is for maritime approaches uh, to uh, Europe, something that used to exist during the Cold War, but then went away and now has come back. Let's also recognize, in all honesty, the greatest gift to NATO since the end of the Cold War is Vladimir Putin and his invasion of the southeastern part of Ukraine, occupation of Crimea, uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia in Georgia, uh, threats to the Baltic states, uh, dangerous maneuvers at sea and in the air and all the rest of this. And this, in a way, uh, you know, NATO has a, an important new reason to live, if you will, and it is uh, the threat that has been posed by Vladimir Putin probably diminished now with the collapse of the price of Brent crude, the reduction of natural gas prices, which are the source of much of the revenue for Russia. Also, the sanctions that have been imposed on it are very difficult. Um, And indeed, Europe has come together for that. And keep in mind that those sanctions were led by the leader of the country that suffered most because it had the most trade with Russia, and that was Germany. The chancellor was very, very strong on this and, and remains so. 
So, you know, I think very much. Now, that does that mean that uh, European countries should spend the 2% of GDP? To, but, you know, they have to. And again, Germany just announced the other day 10% increase in its defense spending. Not yet 2%. It should get to that which the uh, leaders of the NATO countries uh, agreed at a summit in Wales several years back. Uh, but again, I think NATO has done well. The challenge now, as the challenge for many different uh, programs that governments pursue, will be the amount of fiscal debt that is being accumulated very, very rapidly. Uh, keep in mind that in the United States, for example, uh, we have taken on nearly three times our annual discretionary budget. Keep in mind the biggest amount of the budget is non-discretionary. It's entitlement spending, social uh, support uh, funding and so forth. Uh, but the discretionary part, the bulk of which, or the biggest part of which is defense spending, it's about $1.2 total defense spending this year, $740 billion. Um, it's going to be, there's going to be enormous pressure, I assume, once this is all said and done, once we get the economy back to a new normal, because it, there will be certain elements that will evolve, new ones will, will be uh, pursued, and others are not going to come back perhaps as far so uh, as they were before. But there's going to be enormous pressure in the future because of the growth in the debt to GDP ratio, uh, not just in the United States, but in a number of other countries as well. Right. So the good news is that uh, NATO is going to be here. And I, th I think uh, that'll hit uh, LSE uh, headline news uh, sometime uh, in the future, I think. Now, uh, there is another important question. You taught a course in New York called the North American Decades, the decades that follow the American century and the precede the Asian century. It's paradoxical to me because it seems that your entire life has been devoted to defending the longevity of the American century. Would any U.S. president ever accept a scenario that the American century would cede? Well, I, I don't think it's something the president accepts or, decl or, or declines. I think it's reality. Um, you know, the world evolves. Um, you have the rise of new powers. I mean, the rise over the last 41 years of the Chinese economy has been unprecedented. Um, and, and by the way, I should note that that particular, the course title, uh, the first it was the coming North American decades, then I figured they'd arrive. I taught this for three and a half years or so at the City University of New York Honor College. Um, it was a result of a question, in fact, at the Guildhall in London for some conference where they said, well, General, what comes after the Asian century, or the, what comes after the American century? And they expected me, I think, to say, well, the Asian century. And I said, the North American decades. And the amount, the number of decades, if there are multiple, will be determined by how well the U.S. and the other two economies of North America do in capitalizing on four great revolutions. And we spent our time focused on how to, with policies, promote and capitalize on the opportunities of the IT revolution, the manufacturing revolution, the life sciences revolution, and the energy revolution. Um, it was a great, fun course. The students were all handpicked. They were all honors college to begin with and had to compete to be in it. And they would write papers on how the government could make changes, again, to enable, uh, to make the most of these opportunities. Two of those papers were so good. They wrote, the students wrote as if they were the heads of departments or agencies in the government to the White House chief of staff, which was the role I played for that exercise. Two of those were so good, I actually sent them to Dennis McDonough, the chief of staff of the White House, who actually applauded 
them. So it was a, a wonderful intellectual exercise. But yeah, I look, I serving in uniform or in, in government for 38 and a half years, I, you know, I didn't feel as if I was out there defending uh, the empire or the American century or something like that. I felt like we were defending freedoms and rights and so forth that we hold dear in our democracy, as does the UK uh, in its, um, and certainly trying to do the best for our country that we could. But paradoxically, again, I think you often do well individually uh, when you are a great team player. And one of the, you know, you were going to ask me later, I think at some point, what's my advice for future leaders? And, you know, one of them is to be hugely, you know, life is a competitive endeavor. Get over it. Uh, you don't get a trophy just for showing up. You get one for excellence. You might as well recognize it and try to be excellent. Uh, to the greatest extent that you possibly can. You know, the gentleman's B doesn't impress me much. Uh, cadets at West Point who are too cool for school, uh, you know, suck the life out of me. You, you've got to be ready for it. But you don't just compete to be the best individual. You often compete to be the best team player as well. And, again, that's true, I think, of countries also. Um, and, again, the, the – Often the best leader is, is the one that is galvanizing uh, a common spirit, common objectives, common ends. And even when you have competition, I mean, clearly the U.S. and China are in a strategic competition. That's reality. Um, but we also have very large number of common objectives, not the least of which right now is to guide the development of a global solution, again, to a global pandemic. Absolutely. Uh, so, General Patrias, uh, talking about values, I know your father was a Dutch sea captain and your mother was a librarian, loving parents. And when you grew up, your nickname was uh, Peaches. <laughs> that <laughs> so, came from somebody I was in a baseball like... game when I was eight years old <laughs> and the, the announcer <laughs> couldn't pronounce Petraeus and so he just Peaches and that sort of stuck. And, and my West Point classmates still call me that despite reaching four stars and everything else. <laughs> so from that little peaches, let's imagine to General David Petraeus, what were the most important qualities that made you? Look, I mean, we're the product of our environments, of our parents, of our uh, friends, of mentors. I was privileged to have an incredible number of uh, great mentors over the years. And, you know, and to learn about strategic leadership by watching at at first hand, uh, strategic leaders. I was the executive officer for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for a couple of years, a speechwriter for the NATO commander, the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, aide and executive officer, assistant executive officer for a chief of staff of the Army. Um, and so you learn by watching, you learn certainly by doing, even if you're not quite a strategic leader, certainly you're still determining the big ideas for your organization within the big ideas established by the strategic leader. You read uh, avidly. Uh, if you're fortunate enough to be in the military, the professional military education system uh, has very sequential uh, leadership development and education and training. Um, and, and as I said, very fortunate to have some mentors over the years who um, expressed interest. And, you know, and I try to be a mentor myself. Um, and as you think about it, the ones you most enjoy mentoring, I think, are perhaps, number one, those who have a lot of promise. Um, the second is they actually respond, um, and they send you an email uh, when they don't actually need something. 
I'd love to see an email from one of those that, you know, for years and years, and it says, hey, boss, uh, don't need anything, just wanted to give you an update. Uh, that That's a great mentee. Uh, and then when that individual says, hey, uh, sir, I need a letter of recommendation, I'm trying to go to whatever, uh, then you're delighted to do that. I still do numerous letters every single week. So I'm sure the LSC students are taking notes carefully now. So They're probably trying to get my email address so they can... <laughs> Absolutely. So COVID-19 is not uh, so bad after all. When universities are shut down, we actually managed to get uh, General David Petraeus uh, virtually with us, four-star general, former CIA director. Thank you, sir, for your lifetime service. And now please allow me to invite a world-renowned scholar in management, uh, LSE professor Michael Bartali, to further comments. Thanks, Shirley. Thank you, General. Okay, thank you. It's good to have you at the uh, LSE. Maybe next time we can have you uh, in person. I hope so. Um, I kind of wanted to use this uh, time to make sure that uh, we didn't really miss anything from, uh, from your framework and to make sure that all of the comments uh, in the light of the framework sort of came together so that the principles of the framework and your comments about uh, the time of COVID-19 fit together perfectly and uh, people could uh, take that away. So, um, uh, so we may kind of go over a little bit of the same ground, but much more closely in relationship to the, to the framework. Now, <clears throat> as far as the, the framework of strategic leadership uh, is concerned, it seems to me that while it applies probably to almost any endeavor, uh, it's meant to apply uh, specifically to something we could call campaigns. Okay? Um, and there are campaigns come in a variety of, uh, of types. Uh, you can think of electoral campaigns, uh, for example, military uh, campaigns. Uh, Shirley mentioned our students are working hard and they're, they're in campaigns to finish their academic work for the, for the year. And anti-pandemic campaigns are a form of campaign. So, um, and my, my sense is that the, the framework being about campaigns is particularly in um, giving a framework of strategic leadership for a kind of campaign we're talking about now, the anti-pandemic uh, campaign. And so um, uh, the, the, the framework or, or the theory essentially uh, focuses on what management experts have always called the, uh, the management functions uh, of, a, of an enterprise, in this case, the management functions of a campaign, one of which, of course, is planning and that uh, fits into the first of your four points on uh, having the big idea and coming up with the strategy. And uh, I was quite impressed in, uh, uh, in watching some of the, the videos about your framework that you would uh, point to the importance of asking uh, the question, uh, how is this going to end? Uh, and it seems like a very good planning question, uh, not the usual one. Uh, uh, and in part, it's not the usual one because usually the question, often the question for planning is, uh, what are we going to do? Uh, and that's a different question uh, than how is this going to end? Because the how are we going to end question is really about how is this going to work? And that's a big difference. In fact, um, uh, the director of the Wellcome Trust uh, in the UK on a Sunday TV show talking about the pandemic and being invited to criticize the government, uh, declined to do so, but he did say it didn't really matter if uh, in this particular attempt to deal with a pandemic, the um, uh, government did more than it did last time. 
the important thing is to win against the virus. <laughs> so it's about getting uh, getting things accomplished, uh, not just. Um, so I'm just wondering if, in the light of the things you said earlier, um, what's the closest connection that we should have between the planning principle that one should ask the question, how is this going to end, and the many thoughts that you've already shared with us today uh, about how to um, rise to the challenge of this pandemic? Well, when the military goes through the so-called military decision-making process, you spend a great deal of time on developing the mission statement. This sounds actually very easy. It's actually not very easy. In fact, I would argue that we have screwed it up at various times in some of the campaigns we were embarked on. In fact, I said publicly on a number of occasions that we didn't even get the inputs right in Afghanistan uh, until late 2010. And by that, I meant the right tasks and purposes and the purposes, how that what you want to achieve, how it's going to end, but then also the right big ideas as part of that, the, the right uh, organizational architecture, the right number of troops, amount of money, the right leaders, the right preparation of the forces, all of these different elements that go into trying to make progress. Because those kinds of campaigns, you don't win or lose. I refuse to use the words victory or defeat. Um, I would talk about we're either making progress or we are not. Um, and that's what you want to focus on. So, I mean, again, you have metrics. Keep in mind, you get the big ideas right. Um, you communicate them effectively. By the way, that's where the plan is actually communicated. Uh, so in the first week of the surge alone, I gave a speech right after taking the colors and giving them back to the sergeant major that said, we must secure the people. We can only do that by living with them. I then gathered the commanders who were all there uh, for the change of command ceremony, said, guys, we're going back downtown. They said, okay, got it. Then changed the mission statement, transmitted that, then changed the base plan, which was about, oh, 15 to 20 pages. And then over a number of months, changed every one of the annexes, which are the, the subordinate uh, elements, such as the train and equip mission for the Iraqi military, the Iraqi police, the all these different ministries, uh, in addition just to the clear, hold, and build the actual military uh, activities that we were undertaking uh, as well. So that's the actual plan. And then in the oversight of the execution of the big ideas, that's where you develop metrics. And again, you live and die by metrics. So my father, again, a, a not just a Dutch sea captain, but a stubborn, crusty, crusty old Dutch sea captain, which is, I think, what probably all of them are, uh, knowing my Dutch uh, forebears very well and having a lot of Dutch cousins and so forth. And it's an admirable quality, mind you. Uh, again, when we use the term old country, it was an affectionate term, not as used by one of our defense secretaries uh, a decade or more ago. Um, but there's a, there is a focus there on results, and he'd say results boy. And again, he, didn't, he wasn't interested in excuses. He wasn't interested in, you know, yeah, but you know, you either got an A or you didn't. Um, you either won the game or you didn't. You either, again, won the race or you didn't. Uh, I mean, again, there it might be nice if you're in the top three or the top ten or what have you. And obviously you have to judge it by, you know, what you're expected to do, et cetera. But I think the metrics here are very straightforward. And this is why I spent a fair amount of time early on describing, uh, again, those metrics that the experts believe should be the measures of merit. Uh, and in particular, the 14 down days uh, of the trend of the infection numbers, without which you should not 
reopen. Um, and you, you uh, open at your peril if you do. And we're seeing a bit of that in places where there has been an opening that might have been uh, premature. So again, those metrics are very, very clear and we can follow those. If we had even more testing, we would do even better. And I will continually emphasize as I already have uh, repeatedly the critical importance of massive testing. And again, eventually, I think we're gonna to get to some kind of ubiquitous test that again, we'll be able to administer to ourselves and will be tied to a digital uh, app that will have a digital credential without which we're not gonna get on a plane or a train or uh, public transit. Uh, it may be, again, this sounds a bit futuristic, but the Chinese have an app, it's red, amber, green, it's tied to people you came into contact with, again, still experimental. Um, and of course they have an advantage in, in the way that they can uh, conduct their uh, governance and operations. We would have some privacy issues with some of that perhaps, but maybe not. Uh, if that's the price of reopening the economy and getting your livelihood going again, uh, getting your country back on track, uh, it may be that it comes to that. So again, I think there are very, very clear metrics uh, that are already developed. Uh, I recognize that there are some leaders in the United States that actually put these metrics out or put the framework out and then are downplaying or uh, perhaps even suggesting something contrary to some of the guidelines that they issued. Uh, but we'll see how that plays out. My suspicion is uh, that it will not play out well. And the ones to watch are those that are actually focusing on these, like the governor of New York. You can say they might have started sooner there. He agrees with that. Uh, look at the governor of California, governor of Washington, governor of Maryland, uh, Ohio, I think, and some others. Uh, again, these are bipartisan. These are not all uh, Democrat. There are some Republicans in there. Um, but following that and seeing what the numbers reflect, I think, is going to be very illuminating. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. I'd like to um, move on to another aspect of your uh, framework, I, and that is, I think, corresponds to the fourth uh, pillar of it, um, and that is making changes as you go along in the light of what you learn. And, um, you know, clearly because you don't know everything that's going to happen before it happens, it's a very important aspect of the of a strategy that works uh, for a campaign or anything else. Um, but, uh, um, I mean, the principle is either easier said than uh, used, presumably, um, and in particular because, um, you know, once people are pointing in a certain direction and have certain expectations, uh, changing them uh, in uh, along the way uh, may be difficult and uh, may even raise questions about um, the big idea uh, along the way. So I'm just wondering um, from your experience, uh, what's the trickiest part uh, of getting, of making changes? Uh, not trickiest part of coming up with the changes, but trickiest part of making the changes work. Uh, well, larger couple of challenges here. I think first is you have to recognize that organizations get into a certain routine. They develop a certain degree of momentum, inertia, whatever. Um, and altering that, in other words, they're on a certain, pursuing a certain strategy and uh, altering that can be challenging. Um, there can be times where big ideas are resisted. Um, I did not unveil the reconciliation idea until later on uh, because I knew that there would be battalion and brigade commanders who understandably would say, wait a second, hey, boss, you want us to sit down across the table from people who have our blood on their hands 
and we're going to reconcile with them? And the answer was yes, and, but we're going to, that's how you end these, these types of wars. Um, but I had to convince. And in that case, uh, it was very important. In fact, I stopped in London on the way to Iraq to take command of the surge. And among the requests I had of then Prime Minister Tony Blair was that he leave Lieutenant General Graham Lamb in place. I knew Graham from many different tours in different places. We chased terrorists together and, uh, and war criminals in, in the Balkans. Uh, we were division commanders together in the outset uh, in the surge. We were even in respective jobs in the U.S. Uh, when we were not in Iraq that were very similar, developing the doctrine for counterinsurgency, the, how the training and education should be done to prepare forces for that. He was already the, the deputy commander, normally stayed only six months. He was about to come out. I said, I need him to stay longer. And it was because he and I had talked about reconciliation, essentially, that took place in Northern Ireland and how he sat down across from, I think it was Martin McGuinness, who was one of the IRA leaders, I believe. And as he said, you know, his guys were swinging pipes at my lads just two weeks ago. And here I was sitting down across the table. But this is how these things end. And I needed that experience. And then we had General McChrystal, the head of our counterterrorism. He had intel analysts we could use to support this effort. So you've got to pursue that kind of consensus building um, when it's not obvious that the big ideas are clearly right. So you've got to go through that kind of process. And again, one that's the beginning big ideas. Task one, task two, communicate, three, oversee. Task four is, again, to sit down. Again, normally, formally, you have to force yourself to do this. Create action-forcing mechanisms on your battle with them to force you to determine, to identify how to refine the big ideas, how to adopt some new ones, and this was a new one, and then do it again and again and again, noting that we had tried reconciliation before. It was very successful when I was a two-star commander up in Mosul in the north uh, until the Iraqis in Baghdad killed the idea. It was tried in Anbar province, it was tried in Talafar, and it was, and there was in, exist, in existence a, a beginning of that out in Anbar province once again that I knew about, that I intended to build on. But again, we were, this is one where we were going to have to convince our own leaders that this was the right thing to do. They ultimately all embraced it and realized uh, that this is how you reduce the numbers. We didn't just pay these guys off, by the way. In fact, we couldn't pay them for the first three or four months. Uh, but we convinced them that life would be better for them if they supported the new Iraq and us uh, rather than continuing to tacitly or actively support either Al-Qaeda or Sunni insurgents or, on the other hand, Shia. By the way, this was not a trivial task. It was 103,000 Iraqi men over time uh, with whom we reconciled. And it was a huge element of the overarching strategy, uh, the overarching big ideas that that really were the surge that mattered most. It wasn't the extra forces. It was the surge of ideas. I think that gives us a picture of um, how uh, the uh, critical features of a, of a campaign um, can change, at least maybe not different from the original plan, but uh, different <laughs> from the perspective of those participating in its execution. Um, <clears throat> I'm just wondering, because because you know, we're getting new messages from our governments uh, about what stage of the campaign we're in, uh, somewhat new ideas about what would be important um, uh, to getting out of this. 
Um, but a lot of people are, a lot of the citizens are trying to figure out what it means um, and, and act responsibly uh, in that context. And maybe you could just help us understand a little how you were able to get people closer to the ground, uh, not only to accept this direction, uh, but be able to contribute to it. Well, um, certainly it involved, uh, in a sense, convincing those all the way down in the chain of command uh, that this was a wise approach and not not uh, nonsensical or, uh, you know, I hadn't lost my marbles in saying that, yes, we're going to sit down with people who used to be fighting us. This is, and you know, I'm a student of history as well, and when we did the counterinsurgency field manual during the 15 months between my three and four star tours in Iraq, we went back and looked at all the cases, uh, again, in modern counterinsurgency, the French and Indochine, and also in uh, Algeria, the Brits in Oman, Malaysia, US and Vietnam, the whole, there's a number of these different cases, and tried to distill as many general principles, noting that every situation is unique. And that what works in Iraq doesn't work in Afghanistan because they're very, very different uh, contextual circumstances. Um, so that's important. Um, beyond that, I do think that, again, periodically, you do change your big ideas. And it, it just came into my head. Um, Keynes, of course, famously said one time, um, when I get new facts, uh, I change my mind. What do you do? Um, so it's okay to change your mind. Uh, you know, that's, it's not, you don't have to be absolutely dogmatically uh, adherent to the first big ideas that you had, uh, rather, but you should be explaining this. And this is crucial. And I would send letters to the soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guardsmen, and civilians, in fact, of the multinational force Iraq, because we had thousands or tens of thousands of civilians as well. Uh, periodically, and I'd explain what I'm thinking and how we're going about this. But of course, before I've done this, I've gathered the three-star operational commander, the three-star counterterrorism, the three-star train equipped, the two-star division commanders. They're the really the ground owners, if you will. There were, I think, seven of them uh, during the surge in Iraq. Uh, they then go back and, and explain it to their brigade commanders. Each of them had three or three to five maneuver commanders and a variety of others that were in support roles. Uh, they then do it with their battalion commanders who do it with their company commanders who do it with the platoon leaders who do it with the squad leaders. And I literally put out myself um, counterinsurgency guidance um, and I would revise it every few months and just hit the send key and it would go out and everybody would print it. And the idea was to get it all the way down to soldier level. Um, and it was a series of admonitions, such as secure and serve the people, and then you would explain, uh, promote reconciliation, pursue the irreconcilables even more relentlessly. There were some really fun ones in there. There was one that was uh, promote initiative, uh, and, and then it explained, in the absence of orders, figure out what they should have been and execute aggressively. Um, so, and again, I would put that out. Uh, in addition to, of course, the, the formal plans that we had, all of which had metrics associated with them. And, and you would meet, again, on your battle rhythm uh, with the different people that owned these different uh, programs that had the metrics, whether it was trained Iraqis, uh, readiness of Iraqi units, um, equipment fill, uh, all of the, there is a huge number of these. I mean, we would have 
every a different set of uh, metrics that we would look at each day of the week, in addition to the ones that every single day I looked at in the 7.30 a.m. Uh, battlefield update and analysis that started every day formally, having began a bit earlier with an intelligence book, Pendleton Life Cycle, uh, Quick Bite to Eat, and so forth, uh, before getting into that. And, I mean, you know, we'd have bridge day, and this is because the insurgents had blown up all the bridges. We had electrical power day. We had oil production day because they'd blown up all the pipelines. They'd knocked down all the high tension wires. And you have to, you know, drive this campaign. And occasionally you show how important it is, such as I remember there was one particular electrical tower. We kept flying by it. It was when I was flying around in the helicopter going, when you'd go long distances, you'd get on that or actually even on a fixed wing to go full north or south. But I'd see Tower 57, it's on its side. And I finally said in one of these morning updates, uh, the next time that I see Tower 57, the division commander, the two-star, needs to be standing on it with a wrench in his hand. Um, I want that thing fixed. And, you know, whoa, okay. Um, that, but that's how you drive a campaign. And, uh, and again, we would do a one-hour battlefield update and analysis. It was distributed uh, by video conference all around the country. It was actually taped and then uh, emailed to all the – so all the two- and three-stars uh, were on that. And then the, and all of my staff uh, were on it. Uh, and then we would have the brigade commanders and battalion commanders who had access to secure internet uh, could download it and watch it as well. And a lot of them did, um, where they'd type up the key notes. You know, this is what's on the boss's mind. That's how you drive a campaign. And what we should be doing in the U.S. right now and in many other countries, someone's got to drive this campaign at a national level to get all of the resources that are necessary to increase testing to a massive level. Again, at least 5 million a day in the U.S., and we're only doing probably right now 300,000 or so per day. But again, if you think about what is necessary, and for what it's worth, if you look at the example set by the White House, they are testing every day, uh, and that's how they caught a couple of the people that actually tested positive. Uh, they're now selectively isolated. Uh, but that's what we should be doing for any area uh, where we suspect that there are uh, individuals who have contracted the coronavirus. Okay, thank you. I just uh, I know we're <clears throat> we want to get to Q and A from uh, from the audience. Uh, as I was uh, working through this, preparing today, <clears throat> I was uh, uh, trying to think of both analogies and disanalogies uh, between the military. Uh, setting uh, within which you're pursuing the campaign and the situation in a, a anti-pandemic uh, campaign. And uh, the one thing that um, I came up with as a disanalogy uh, was that the, the troops, in this case the civilians, <clears throat> haven't been trained uh, in the way that the uh, military uh, participants have been <clears throat> trained, and, and it could be, although we don't necessarily think about this this way, that training helps you be uh, adaptive. Um, and so <clears throat> I was um, thinking, okay, well, what would be the analogy to training the civilian population um, in advance of um, being participants in, uh, in their role in a uh, anti-pandemic uh, campaign and though I'm too young to have experienced this uh, personally, uh, I am aware that uh, of civil defense uh, drills and routines 
that were, um, you know, that have lived experience of people perhaps even older than you. Um, and I'm just thinking that uh, uh, the power of your framework, if you, if you actually work through these analogies, is to identify things that, are, that don't fit and then think hard of what would be the, uh, the functional substitute. Um, sure. And perhaps uh, uh, yep. this idea of uh, civil defense against uh, for the future um, uh, pandemic might be on the agenda. Anyway, thank you very much. I, I hope that we can well, uh, nail this even me, further in the future. Up, now back if I could, Michael, first of all, thanks for the, the great questions. Um, look, oh, okay, absolutely, the military sort of has an advantage. I mean, a commander can actually give an order and expect that most of the folks are going to uh, to obey it, to implement what it is, the direction that is given. Uh, again, even there, I think if you're falling back on on your command authority all the time, rather than on the persuasive powers of your ideas, uh, that you your ideas may not be. If you have to actually say, well, do it because I'm telling you to do it uh, too often, uh, that's probably not a good indicator. Um, Clearly, when it comes to a national leader or a governor of a state in the United States uh, convincing citizens, here I think you have to be very persuasive. I think you have to lay out why it's in their self-interest, um, why it's in the interest of others about whom they presumably care. It's about being a good citizen. This is what you should do. Uh, appeal to their sense of patriotism and, and, of, and, again, of service to others. And by the way, there are huge examples of this emerging all over uh, our country. I'm sure there uh, as well. Uh, the, the compassion, the generosity, the, all of this, uh, I think, comes out in tough times. Um, here, again, I think it is perhaps appropriate to think about some kind of almost national service uh, that could actually be employed. Um, and I believe very much in the power of national service. I just don't want the military uh, to be a vehicle for that because our job should be to train and equip forces to be ready uh, to deter warfare or if you God forbid you have to fight it then again to do that. Um, when it comes to national service, then what are the other opportunities? And I think the value of this is, again, people pull together. They work with others who are not like themselves. Um, it may well be that some kind of contact tracing organization, some kind of testing regime, some kind of, I don't know, will the modern day air warden from the Blitz become the modern day um, supervisor of selective isolation of individuals who have tested positive and they're there to check on them to make sure they need anything to educate them on the latest uh, developments and, and all the rest of that. But again, clearly the challenge for a national or subnational leader is to persuade because you just can't order. Now you can, you can make a law, you can have the law enforcement uh, indeed uh, ensure that that is followed but if you really think about most of what goes on in society is a result of people actually stopping at red lights just because they realize they should stop at red lights, not because they think there is a policeman standing around the corner uh, adhering to whatever it is, speed limits uh, and all the rest of that, just because they realize they should be good, reasonably good citizens when it comes to this. Um, and I think there are a lot of analogies here. And I think in a, in a pandemic like this, you do have to galvanize the population. You do have to appeal to their sense, uh, again, of citizenship and of 
uh, support for others. And, you know, and wear a mask, not because for you, but for other people uh, as well. So that kind of approach, I think, is very, very valid. I think it's called for in these times. And we've seen um, some governors in the United States do this very effectively, actually. Well, thank you very much, Michael, and thank you, General. I wanted to bring in some questions now. We have, a, as you can imagine, with this size of audience, we have a very large number of questions. So I have one question that I think one can um, think of is, is there are several people who have raised this. I, I'm going to bring out one of them. Which I think is is an, so. It's this is a question on how to, you know. So you are working uh, with leaders who may not necessarily be doing the right thing, and of course, as a, a general, uh, you have to manage upwards as well, and uh, you have to. So, for example, this is from Gavin Charles, LLC alumnus, currently working with a Canadian international development organization. So he asked, what are your thoughts of managing up? Let's see if there's a failure of strategic leadership at the top of a hierarchy. How can those below help to fill the gap? Imagine that you were in the place of, of uh, sure. yeah. Antonio Fauci in, yeah. in, in the US. Well, obviously you try to employ your persuasive tools and arguments. Uh, you lay out the logic uh, for taking a particular action. Um, Look, I had to manage up most of my career. I mean, it was only in the surge in Iraq and the surge in Afghanistan to a degree Central Command, actually maybe as a three-star in the United States where we had this huge purview over uh, the training education organization and all the rest of this. Uh, but the rest of the time, uh, there was somebody above me who was the strategic leader. Uh, they might leave a fair amount of latitude, but at the end of the day, again, you are... Uh, trying to persuade your boss to do or allow you to do something uh, or in fact ask him to do something. Um, and again, it takes persuasion. You have to understand uh, your boss. You have to understand what is it that can uh, get his or her attention, uh, what might be the persuasive uh, approach that could be adopted. Um, but you don't, you don't win all the time. Um, there are numerous cases where I went in and argued for something uh, as a battalion commander, brigade commander, division commander, what have you. Um, and we didn't always look. When I was the commander of the 101st Airborne Division, the great 101st, and there will be some that will have noticed that I am conspicuously drinking from a 101st Airborne Division mug. This is the Screaming Eagle patch. Um, Ambassador Bremer, the head of the Coalition Provisional Authority, took actions that cut our knees out from under us. Um, and we, which we sought to persuade him not to do, um, but firing the military without telling them what their future was. Again, you needed to do demobilization, uh, disarmament, demobilization, reintegration, the traditional tasks in post-conflict situations, especially if you have a huge sort of jobs program kind of military like Iraq had, especially jobs program for generals, I might add. But you don't fire them all and expect them to support you the next day. Um, you've just created the seeds of the insurgency. And that was exactly what happened um, when it came to debathification without an agreed reconciliation. Don't get me wrong. Uh, we needed to, and the, and the guys at the top, the ones that were in the deck of cards, let's say, 
Uday and Kuse, Saddam's sons, uh, number two and three. We were proud to have uh, brought them to justice. We wanted to have them uh, surrender. They didn't. They shot back. They uh, caused some casualties. And so we basically took the building down around them. Um, and again, we would do that again. And the same for those, even the next level down. But when you get down to the level four level, this is tens of thousands of bureaucrats that we needed to run that country. Uh, Mosul University, for example, had 120 tenured professors who were bath level four uh, furka, uh, and they were all cast off. And again, in that society, there's no private universities to which they can go get a job. They're, they're finished. And so we got permission. I did it, ultimately get permission from Ambassador Bremer to have reconciliation in the 101st Airborne Division. It worked really well. It gave them new hope. It gave them a reason to support the new Iraq. Now, again, we had a sign on our operations uh, wall of our operations center, and it asked, will this operation take more bad guys off the street than it creates by its conduct? And if the answer to that is no, you're supposed to go sit under a tree until the thought passes. That's what Ambassador Bremer should have done because we created vastly more enemies uh, then we took off the street by firing the military without telling them what their future was for five weeks. Finally, and in fact, I flew down and finally confronted the individual who was in charge of that policy and said, your policy is killing our troops. And finally, they decided on some kind of stipend program, but we had lost five weeks that we could never get back. And that really did in many ways sow what became ultimately uh, an insurgency. And the same with the other members of the government. Uh, the level four in particular, uh, and again, most of them, by the way, educated in the UK or the US, these are the ones that we wanted to help run the new Iraq, and instead they were cast on the ash heap of history, except for our reconciliation initiative, which only we could only keep alive for about five or six months before those in Baghdad uh, killed that. So look, you don't win them all, and uh, we had some catastrophic setbacks as a result of not being able, or actually just having a decision made without our consultation, which is actually the case in those two, although when we appealed it very quickly and could have retrieved something, um, there was no response until it was very clear how devastating an impact this had. So you do have to, to manage up. You do have to try to convince your boss of something if you firmly think that that's the right course to take and, uh, and it's not being pursued. Uh, but you also have to recognize that you're not always going to get that. And by the way, in the military world, um, look, there's never been a general in history who, in combat who had enough troops, enough money, enough now bandwidth, um, high 25 megahertz taxat channels and, and unmanned aerial vehicles. Um, so you're always trying to, again, get more and you're trying to hang on to it as long as you can. Uh, but you're not going to be able to do that. You have to accept, again, that someone else is going to make a choice. And by the way, he or she has some other issues out there uh, that aren't within your purview, but that are very real, and that could cause someone to make a decision that you would not recommend. And again, that's where you have to deal with that. I mean, if it's truly that significant, um, then, of course, uh, that's where I think you have to, if, you know, if you're, you're not taking my advice, boss, you didn't take it on that, you didn't take it on that, perhaps it's time for you to, for me to allow you to get somebody else whose advice you might follow. 
Thank you. There, there, there are many questions on this issue that I actually brought up in my introduction was, you know, your use of sort of war terminology. So that, for example, Chris Pook, who is a former uh, British military who served 10 years in Afghanistan, I think, it is called, he said, calling this crisis a war helps to lionize politicians who want to be like wartime leaders and trivializes the depths of healthcare in wars. This is a healthcare emergency and with the proper response and equipment, our doctors and nurses would not be dying. There are several questions in, 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 in this. You did, a lot yeah. to, you did a lot to change thinking about how you fight a war. Are we using the right terminology even when we use these references? Yeah. From I, I don't think it's unreasonable uh, to liken this to a war. Uh, let's keep in mind, as an example, um, in the United States, we have lost more Americans. We lost more in one month, the month of April, than we lost in the entire Vietnam War. Uh, and not only that, now we've lost more than all that we lost in Vietnam, plus both Iraq wars, Afghanistan, and the 9-11 attacks, and soon will be the Korean War, uh, perhaps, as well. Um, so I don't think this, I mean, this is a a horrific uh, situation, and it is a, you know, the unseen enemy. I don't think it's wrong to use the term enemy. Um, and I would submit that those who are on the front lines, and I have recognized this in my social media, um, which is only on LinkedIn to be sure, but uh, the front lines in this war uh, are those who are in our healthcare system uh, and those, the, the first responders, the police, the ambulance drivers. Uh, it's all of those that are supporting those efforts who are truly putting their lives on the line, in some cases without sufficient protective equipment, uh, as was noted, um, and yet are still there because they feel the commitment uh, the importance of a mission that is larger than self. So I see um, a very distinct analogy. Now, it shouldn't be overused. I mean, it shouldn't be to cloak yourself in this uh, and to be, I'm a wartime leader, and therefore, you know, well, then you have to obviously meet the responsibilities of, of a wartime leader as well. But I, I don't think that, again, some of the approaches of, you know, one of the greatest wartime leaders of all history uh, of Churchill who both work very hard to get the big ideas right, also to communicate them, to inspire, to, to give this sense of relentless determination. Um, and, and again, I think truly an extraordinary leader in every single facet of this strategic leadership, uh, getting the big ideas right, communicating them effectively. Again, uh, a masterful, eloquent, uh, extraordinary speaker, his relentless oversight of them. I mean, he wasn't the easiest of guys to work for, obviously, and his own battle rhythm, which, as you know, sort of extended every day until the early hours of the next day, wore out a lot of his staff. But by golly, he was driving that campaign. And then, of course, you know, this ever inquisitive mind that he had, perhaps he had too many good ideas at times, but, you know, you listen to all the others because in those are some real nuggets uh, that indeed helped to turn the tide of a war that would have reshaped the world. There are many questions also on, um, you know, the 
diversity of, of leadership. And you referenced some examples of women who had been you know, very effective in your co uh, command. So, for example, Catherine Schwartz is LSE alumna. We still have staggeringly low numbers of women and people of color in strategic leadership roles across government and industry, even that these people are often disproportionately negatively impacted by the crisis like COVID-19. How do we make sure their voices are represented in planning, managing responses and recovery efforts? Another number of other questions re reference, you know, the example set by some women leaders and so on. How, do you think we would have had a different response had we had more women involved in, in the preparation? And yeah, I, I don't know whether it is as much uh, gender um, that is what determines the effectiveness. I mean, you've seen arguably the single most effective leader uh, in the pandemic is, in fact, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Um, and she has been exemplary. Uh, she was also exemplary in the wake of that mass shooting, needless to say, and hugely impressive. Again, getting the big ideas right, communicating them, great communicator, relentless uh, overseer of the campaign, and, and constantly determining how to tweak them, how to refine them. Now, it helps to be an island in, the, in a case like this. It helps to be able to, you know, it's really hard I mean, you really have to want to go to New Zealand if you're going to try to just go there some way other than flying um, or, or a ship that is going to be official. Um, but again, she has been exceptional. Chancellor Germany has been exceptional. Again, but I'm sure there are probably some women who haven't been, just as there have been men who haven't been and some who have. So I don't know whether it's gender. I do think that I, I long felt in the U.S. military uh, that, look, it's, it shouldn't be about gender. It should be about ability. Um, and, you know, if you can pass the physical fitness test to go to ranger school and they can make it all the way through ranger school and there's no uh, reduction of standards in any way, uh, assuming the standards all made sense to begin with, uh, then, you know, what is the big deal here? And lo and behold, we've had women in the United States go through ranger school that basically have opened up virtually every opportunity in the military, keeping in mind that, of course, it was the military that was one of the first desegregated uh, elements in the U.S. Uh, on a national basis, even when many of our military bases in the South uh, still were uh, surrounded by states that had segregation. So I think the military has long been a champion of this. It's always difficult. Um, look, you have it in the financial industry, um, and I, maybe there are some reasons for why that might be. Um, uh, obviously, women have certain, if you will, responsibilities when it comes to uh, giving birth that are tough to share, uh, and so on. Um, but at the end of the day, we've gone to great lengths at my firm. We actually allow, we'll pay for a nanny to go with a mother, a new mother, on a trip. Um, there's a, there is a parental leave for both, uh, uh, male as well as female, but that's, what's necessary to, again, keep people. Uh, we had a very innovative approach at the CIA, which is about 45% women, I might add. And one reason for that is that when, uh, women, uh, had children and said, look, I just can't do the grinding hours that I normally do. I really want to raise my child, at least to the point that he or she is eligible for the daycare. So we ran our own daycare center inside the compound of the CIA. Um, and so we said, fine, look, we'll let you do, how about 20 hours a week, just so you can keep your clearance, keep your uh, intellectual 
capital reasonably. So this will be a case where you are a net consumer rather than a net contributor, but that's okay because when your child is ready for daycare, school, and you can devote more time, we'll allow that. And lo and behold, you know, 10, 15 years later, uh, when the child is off at college, this emerges as the director of the CIA, noting that we have the first uh, female director now, and she is a professional. Uh, she's not a political appointee. She worked her way up within the ranks, and I, at one point, ensured that there was a step that she took uh, that was critical in that regard. So, you know, you have to take active steps uh, to recruit people. Um, and you've got to have people uh, in your organization that others can look to and say, I'd like to be like that person. If you have no person of color or no uh, women in your organization, um, who do they look to as an example? I, you know, if you really think about, people ask me, why did I go to West Point? Well, gosh, I live seven miles away. I delivered newspaper to people that were West Point graduates. Um, my Sunday school teacher, the ski coach, all these were, and I could see cadets. Uh, I wanted to be like them. I, we have a saying in the United States, of course, I want to be like Mike. Of course, referring, I think, to Michael Jordan. Um, and, you know, I, I just wanted to be like Mike. In this case, it was cadets. Well, who can you say I want to be like Mike if, if Mike or Michelle or whatever does not exist in an organization. So you have to go out and get people uh, who can then provide a, an example for those who might want to aspire. And they are the trailblazers. And this is why uh, it is so important uh, that we've recognized over the years the individuals that have literally done that. There was an African-American uh, parachute unit, uh, for example. We dedicated a monument to at the Command and General Staff College when I was a three-star uh, there. And as we said, they jumped into history for their race. Um, they, they, they led their race, uh, again, into the U.S. military in combat roles, not just as supply uh, transport or what have you, which is what an awful lot of those in World War II were doing. There are a number of questions that have to do with sort of, I guess, multiple missions. You are a commander and you have to yep. Both improve on climate change. How do you straddle different missions, and how can is are there ways in which you can use one mission to achieve the other mission? I'm yeah, a, I said I'm this, this I is a question. A, my, let, 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 let me uh, just. Uh, I lost a little bit of because that. I want to reference. You're breaking up a bit. Yeah. So okay. So so that's the question from Heidi Samso. Uh, she's a PhD at LSE. How do leaders effectively address the current crisis without taking away focus? To tackle the even greater, deeper crisis of climate change, and it goes to this issue of you know having yeah um, multiple well, missions. I mean, and at the end of the day, you've got to prioritize it. it now, but prioritization doesn't mean that you, everything you do is is on this. Um, you have to. I, I used to say, for example, people used to ask me, what do you do as the U.S. commander of U.S. Central Command? This is a an area of responsibility, 21 countries from Egypt in the west to Pakistan in the east, Kazakhstan in the north, to Yemen and the pirate-infested waters off Somalia in the south. They said, and they said, what in the world do you do? And of course, we had the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, we had Yemen, we had terrorists all over the place, we had pirates, we had all kinds of challenges. We had 60-plus coalition members in one country, 30 or so in another. 
Um, and I said, look, think of the commander of Central Command like the guy in the circus who keeps the plate spinning. You know, he gets a stick, he puts a plate on it, he gets it going, and that one's going. Then he runs over and he does another and gets that one going, and then he does another. Now, and he ultimately, he has got a lot of plates spinning. And the key is that you can't let the most important plates, the most important missions, uh, fall. They can't fall down and, and break. Um, so some plates are much more important than others. And again, uh, the pandemic clearly has to be the most important plate right now. Again, if we don't resolve the health crisis, we are not going to be able to resolve the economic crisis that is a result of it. But it doesn't mean that as you're keeping that one plate really spinning, that you can't address other missions. You can't keep other plates spinning, metaphorically speaking. And one of those certainly would be the climate issue. Um, and of course, we've seen with this dramatically reduced amount of uh, economic activity that how blue the sky is. And, you know, all of a sudden you can see the Himalayas from cities that used to be covered in smoke, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that shouldn't mean that you shut down the economy to solve climate because if you do that, obviously. So it's a matter of how can you get the economy going again, but do it in a much more uh, intelligent and uh, climate friendly, environmentally friendly way. Um, and hopefully during this time, we're not stopping work on those kinds of issues. Um, although I have some concerns with the reduction of the price in oil, whether the incentives for renewables and, and so forth, smart grid, et cetera, uh, will be seen as important uh, as they were before this all happened. Um, but that's the, the, the function of leadership uh, is not just to get the tasks and the purposes right for each of these different missions. It's to determine how to allocate resources to them. And by the way, keep in mind that strategic leaders in most cases are allocating shortages. Uh, again, to give the example of U.S. Central Command, you know, you have Iraq, they want all the unmanned aerial vehicles we have. Afghanistan wants its share. We got some stuff going on in Yemen. My gosh, their pirates just hijacked a ship, so you got to put some over there. Oh, but by the way, don't forget about what's going on in the Gulf and Iran harassing shipping. You are always allocating shortages, but there has to be a main effort, it has to get the bulk. You've got to, again, resolve that one while still keeping these others going. Uh, and I think that's one of the challenges of leadership uh, is to ensure that the priorities are right and that they're then adhered to by everybody. A part of driving the campaign is to make sure not just the really visible resources are allocated properly, but it's all these other assets uh, that are necessary for success in each one of these discrete missions that they get their share of that and that the one determined to be the main effort gets most of them or, or gets the most of all of the others. But superpowers in particular can keep many plates spinning at a time and that's exactly what we have to do. Well, there have been many questions about, uh, you know, what are the qualities of, of a strategic leader and, and uh, you know, one question maybe as a final question could be does a strategic leader does he need empathy or she need empathy yeah i think that's certainly a quality i think again that's over in you know that's after you get the big ideas right although in many cases if you have a an inclusive open transparent 
even empathetic, if you will, uh, encouragement to all those in your organization to uh, be engaged in the determination of the big ideas. I think that helps. Uh, the communication component, you know, you want to con communicate concern. Uh, that might be one of the big ideas, in fact. Uh, but it's over here in the overseeing the execution of the big ideas where I think that really comes through. Um, and I can tell you, you have to be if you're a commander on a battlefield. Uh, Command Sergeant Major Marvin Hill, uh, a great senior non-commissioned uh, senior enlisted advisor to me in four combat tours, uh, he and I went to a lot of memorial ceremonies and you put a lot of arms around a lot of shoulders and, and it's okay for, for soldiers to, to hug one another and it's okay to demonstrate uh, emotion. I mean, you have to. Um, number one, you can't stop doing it to a degree. Um, you know, you have to show relentless determination. You've got to show drive. You've got to have energy. You've got to have encouragement. You do have to have empathy and you have to understand. And by the way, for what it's worth, an uh, awareness of the challenges of subordinate units is part of this as well. Uh, we literally had to move some units uh, in Iraq because they were getting hammered so badly in the early months of the surge. The casualties were so high. I mean, there was one single infantry battalion three weeks in a row each week. The Sergeant Major and I went to memorial ceremonies in which they were uh, honoring five or more soldiers killed uh, in attacks, individual attacks uh, during that particular week. Um, so you have to understand that. And you've got to have, you have to appreciate the emotions. Uh, you have to appreciate what, again, combat does to individuals. It changes everybody. Uh, trust me. I mean, this is a grinding, grueling experience. And you have to understand that. In fact, if you can't understand that, how in the world can you lift them up? How in the world can you share uh, emotions with them? How can you give in, uh, inspiration? Um, how can you communicate that you actually understand what they're going through? It's one of the reasons that on that battle rhythm, twice a week minimum, right after that morning update I talked about, we would go and either get in an armored vehicle and drive downtown Baghdad or a helicopter to go outside someplace further, or sometimes a fixed-wing plane to go north or south, uh, and there we would go on patrols with soldiers. Now, I don't want to, you know, make this too heroic, uh, you know, like we're out there clearing and holding and, and engaging in a, you know, short-range knife fight or something like that, but you're walking on patrols with them in tough areas through markets that had been bombed a week earlier, uh, through areas where snipers had killed our soldiers uh, in, in previous days, and you have to do that. You have to share at least part of the risk and the hardship. Um, you can't share it completely because you obviously have a whole different set of responsibilities and duties, but you do need to be seen. Uh, they need to see you and you need to see them. Uh, and they need to know that you appreciate the hardships they are enduring uh, for a mission that we're all engaged in together. And, they, and you have to communicate uh, your deep appreciation uh, of what it is that they're doing. And that's exactly what national leaders and state leaders and so forth and municipal leaders have to do right now when it comes to those who are on the front lines of this current war, the pandemic, uh, because they are, uh, they are sharing enormous risk and enormous hardship uh, with their fellow members on the front lines 
And we all need to recognize that. That is why at 7 p.m. every evening in New York City, uh, everyone goes out and bangs pots and cheers and makes noise uh, to show their appreciation for those who are indeed sacrificing uh, for the greater good uh, in the health clinics, in the first responder ranks, and so forth. Well, thank you very much, General Petraeus. You have given us uh, a glimpse into the thinking of strategic leadership that we very much uh, appreciate and also remind us that we are talking about lives being put at risk and, and, and life being saved or life being lost. So that's a very important lesson when we talk in the abstract about strategic leadership, not to forget that. I think I want to thank also Professor Michael Barcelli for his remarks and for for her uh, moderation and we very much hope that you will have a chance to come back in person to LSE and uh, share more of your uh, insights and, and experience. So thank you very much and uh, be safe. Be care. Take thank, care. Thank you Eric. Michael, Shirley, I look forward to being there in person.